0: is a new year's sunday and if you've been around this church for any amount of time you know that i'm a new year's guy uh and you know that because long before i was the pastor at menham hills or i was on staff um i was uh, as far as i can remember i've been the new year's sunday speaker here every new Year's sunday um i i got challenged by um uh, the elders of the church to get up and give a talk on new year's and because I don't know. I just haven't given up on it yet. Every year. It, it doesn't get old for me. I wake up New Year's Day, and I do the same thing. I um, put the Honeymooners Marathon on. I think it's like me and a couple of 90-year-olds at this point that are watching the Honeymooners Marathon. I watch the football games, which don't matter as much as they used to because of the, the college bowl you know, series, the championship stuff they started. And then I... I think about New Year's. I get invigorated by the hope a new year brings. The thought, do you, do, I don't know, does this resonate with you? Like, I don't know why, but every year it's like, you know, this year, this could be the year. This could be different than last year. It could be better than last year. Not that last year was bad, but this year could be even greater. It's not too late to change. You know, it's not too late to change. I, I could be, be more of the man I want to be, the husband and father and son. I, I'd like to be a better pastor, a, a better child of God. There's something about New Year's Day, at least for me, and I'm older than a lot of you now, which I can't believe I have to say publicly, but uh, there's something that, that for me, inside, still feels fresh and new on January 1st and 2nd and 3rd. This New Year's, though, brought with it a devastatingly sad reminder to our community that for many, especially for our kids and our teens in particular, that the world, not just New Year's Day, but every day has become a place not of wonder or hope or promise, but for so many of them a place of where there's an increasing level of, of hopelessness and sadness and, and depression. Many of you know, Dave Dave referenced it a little bit, that two young men in our town lost that battle this New Year's. Now, I could go over for you the statistics. I read them again this week about what is happening with our children. But most of you know them by now. Something has happened in our community, in our culture. Something has changed. And I want to be so very careful here. I'm not going to say much more on this issue at least right now because I think it would be unfair and honestly it would be borderline exploitive of the shock and the pain and the loss so many in our town, town are feeling. My, my own children are feeling. Answers aren't simple. They can't be found in one sermon. And quite frankly, often prevailing sentiments and wishes can seem, though heartfelt, trite in light of the severity of loss and pain. And so, without going on too much, I do want you to know that I and this church stand with each and every one of you that are hurting this morning. We are ready to do, I'm ready to do anything that I can, we can, to walk with folks, walk with our kids and our community and the families impacted by these tragedies. As I reflected on them this week and and how we as a local church community could help in the epidemic, one thought kept coming back to me is that we have to become a place, a center of hope. We have to become what we spent our Christmas season this year focusing on, we have to become a place of light in an increasingly dark world we we have to together figure out strategically how do we elevate that so that our kids can see the very real hope of christ we've got to spend some time figuring out ways to make this real for them the hope of jesus the promises of god We've got to figure out a way to make that real for them and their parents and their families and frankly for each of us. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In that same way, let your light shine before others so they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I want to be that city on a hill. Peter wrote, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Guys, this is a 2020 goal. Revere Christ. Raise His light. Give a reason for hope and do it with gentleness and respect. And so towards that end, as a first step on that journey, I, I want to offer you a new series and a resource I became aware of during our fall talks. Um, we entitled that series, it was called More, Living Abundantly in a World of Scarcity. If you weren't around, if you missed some of those discussions, they're on our website, you can check them out. But as I researched that topic both, both um Biblically and sociologically and psychologically, I, I came away with a profound sense of the depth of this issue. In fact, if you remember, I told you when we finished, I'm not done with this. I have to go back with this. There's more here. That perhaps as never before, we've allowed ourselves to, be, while we are the most successful, the wealthiest people that have ever lived, we've allowed ourselves to become people who think with mindsets of scarcity and not people who believe or trust in the abundance and the promises and the possibilities of God, which has led for so many of us to a sense of fear and a lack of control and despair. If God can't be trusted, if we've kind of given up on that hope, well then I'm all alone and then everything is on me. I I have to be enough. I saw Oprah this week. I love Oprah, not bashing Oprah. Uh, she's taking a tour and she's, she's going out on, this, on the town and she's going to encourage everybody to live their best life now and I'm all on board with that. But she said something which I thought had a danger, dangerous message attached to it, that you are enough. Which says that you're in this on your own. But you're not. That's not our message. This is not all up to you. If I'm in it all alone, then it's all on me, it's all my responsibility. I have to be enough. And what if my grades aren't enough? What if my college, you know, they're going to post where I'm going to college and well, that's not going to be good enough. And what if my boyfriend isn't handsome enough or my girlfriend isn't pretty enough or my parents don't, don't have the right jobs or my sports accomplishments aren't enough? What if they all add up and say I'm not enough? This mindset that we fall into quite naturally in the world we live in, I'm not enough, there's not enough, there's not enough money to go around, or love, or fame, or respect, or popularity, it turns everything in this world into a giant competition. Fear enters into our lives, and with it, the suffocating and toxic offshoots of anxiety. The problem is, as people of faith, we're often not any better at dealing with these fears and emotions than the general population. Although we should be, the whole world around us tells us to be scared. I woke up this morning and I read the news before I get started in the morning. And one of the breaking stories was that the Selective Service website crashed yesterday, driven by fears of a new draft and the coming of World War III. It's everywhere. Jack Alexander, in his brilliant book called The God Guarantee, which is this great book, terrible title, great book, writes that we're caught between two lies— That the scarcity mindset first emerged in ancient Egypt in the time of Pharaoh. According to Genesis, the first book in the Bible, chapter 41, historically documenting a fact that existed, Pharaoh dreamt that there was going to be a famine in his land, and so that made him afraid, and his fear encouraged the first recorded application of scarcity into an economy. He began to go out and hoard resources from all of the other, other cultures nearby. Alexander writes, fast forward 3,500 years, and government and secular entities are still the primary conduits of a scarcity message. Taxes take what we have. Media fills us up with a lust for bigger houses and better clothes and more possessions. Our modern education system keeps telling us that our bodies are just mere mutations of cells. We're accidents of evolution. We live in an arbitrary system, and it only rewards the survival of the fittest, and it eliminates any other possibilities. During the best periods of human history, the Christian church countered that message by pointing to a bigger, divinely inspired picture, that God was at work, that this was all going somewhere, and it balanced out the cultural narrative. A weekly Sabbath, remember when your kids didn't have sports games on Sunday? A weekly Sabbath pulled us away from the race for money and reminded us to focus on a loving and powerful and eternal God. The Scriptures reminded us that there's a higher purpose and there was eternal life waiting for us. But as the split between the church and the culture grew, the balance slipped. And Christians today are not exempt from a scarcity mentality either. In a complex and changing world, many of those who trust in Jesus aren't sure what to truly believe. They see the news, but not the Savior And so they're caught between two devastating lies about God's ability to provide and be trusted in modern times. On one side are those who believe the lie that they've been abandoned. I think for many of us this is the common thought. Many of us have shut down and stopped trying to reconcile the idea of a loving God with a difficult world. And so feeling left out, unloved, and unprovided for they leave the church and the God who they think hasn't kept up his end of the bargain. Today, almost 60% of those who grow up in the Christian church will leave it and may give up their faith altogether within the first decade of their adult life. Some of you are wrestling that with your, with your own children. Even those who stay in the pews often mentally, mentally give up. God's promises of provision that he could be trusted. And so even those of us that show up on Sunday, we live like functional agnostics, hoping that God is real, but really believing he actually makes a tangible difference very little in their day-to-day lives. I mean, sure they think God can handle the universe, but either he doesn't care or he can't be bothered to help me get a car that doesn't break down. They trust the laws of economics more than the promises of Jesus and and government programs more than God's people, and and when those don't work, they're only left with scarcity and isolation. And then see, on the other side of the Christian spectrum is another lie, which is just as insidious and damaging, the shiny, shallow promises of what's known as prosperity theology. Draw the wishful thinking of the disheartened and the afraid prosperity speakers, including many of those who call themselves ministers of of Jesus' gospel. They tell believers it's your right to be blessed and it's God's obligation to provide. And so they portray him as an omniscient ATM that's accessed by positive confessions of faith. You can speak things into existence and, and God orbits us if we do things right, If you just claim it, name it and claim it, then health and wealth and power, they're going to be yours. But when the attitude of entitlement doesn't work, and I'm here to tell you that it doesn't, that may may be unpopular with some, but it doesn't. Weary Christians are left disillusioned and disconnected from the God of the Scripture because it didn't work. Alexander goes, what if I told you there was another way to Look at the place where our fears challenge our faith, a a path that cuts between those two lies and can lead to a genuine future facing hope. Because God isn't limited by our false beliefs and those lies. God actually has a better way for us to live. That way, the path through those two lies is what I want to talk about in the coming week. And so I think Alexander does a pretty good job of laying these things out Uh, uh, once or twice a year. I like to offer you all a a, a book to read, something I think that could be helpful in your daily lives. And so this book, The God Guarantee, we're going to be using as as kind of a a discussion point over the next coming weeks. If you're a reader, I want to encourage you. We've ordered a bunch of these. We don't make any money on these we sell them at what, uh, uh, what it costs us to buy. And I think uh, Jana will tell you when she gets out to the Welcome Center, but I think we're, we're selling these for five bucks. So I'd encourage you to pick one up and journey with us through the, the next couple of weeks. Because beginning in 2020, I would like to help all of us create a new life rhythm where we can keep one foot firmly planted in the world of what is reality. But another bravely place in the world of what could be. We cannot offer to our kids, we cannot offer to our community something we don't have. We need to become people of hopeful realism. All right, so what's the pattern? What's the life rhythm? that Jesus understood, that can lead to hopeful realism and move us from being people of fear to people of faith. Inspired by uh, Old Testament scholar and theologian Walter Brueggemann, an interesting pattern in the Scriptures can be discovered, which, frankly, I hadn't seen before. And when I looked at it months ago, I I was like, this is really surprising And I haven't heard a lot of people talk about this. You're familiar with the pattern, actually. You've heard it. You've seen it. But maybe if you're like me, you haven't put it together. I'm going to show you what I mean. We're going to start with a a pretty famous story, a a story that begins with a child and a gift. The same story, by the way, is recorded in all four of the Gospels. There are four books in the New Testament that share the story of who Jesus is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Think about it. All four of them, they were writing for different audiences at different times with different perspectives, but they all understood that this one story was of such significance that this story had to be included in everybody's telling of Jesus' ministry. This is the only miracle prior to Jesus' resurrection that appears in all four books. After hearing of John the Baptist's death, Jesus retreated to a place of solitude, his reputation is out on the streets. People are aware of who he is and what he can do and the miracles he's performed. And so crowds have been following him. And, and this is no different. And so despite his desire to get away, the crowds from the region began following him and, and they found him. Here's how John recorded it. When Jesus looked up and saw great crowds coming, together, coming toward him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? This is interesting. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. John's the only one who records this little detail. The other writers didn't. When faced with the crowds and their needs, Jesus calls Philip over and asks him a question. Philip, where where should we buy bread for these people? He does it not to get an answer, because he already knows what he's going to do. He does it because he wants to understand how Philip thinks how he sees the world. Here's Philip standing next to the Son of God. Philip, who has seen a lame man walk, who has seen a leopard healed. Philip, a man, well, like you and me, who kind of believed, believed enough to follow, but a man who also had two feet firmly planted in the world of what is and not what if. And so Philip answered him from the world of what is. Well, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each of them to have a bite. It is what it is, Jesus. There's nothing more Jersey than that. There's no way. I mean, what are we going to do? There's no way to feed all these people. There's not enough to go around. In fact, the other gospel writers actually say one of the other disciples chirps up and goes, you know, you should just send them home. Just give up. It's not going to happen, Jesus. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and with two small fish, but how far are they going to go among so many? I love that. Here's a boy. Here's a kid. It's another John-only detail, but it got me wondering, what what if it was the boy, and I think it was, what if it was the boy that stepped forward? What if it was the boy that said, "Um, you know, I actually have some stuff here. I think it's probably likely because you can see Andrew's attitude about what he had. I don't think Andrew would have brought this to Jesus' attention, but it seems like the boy had a different mindset. The boy came forward with what he had because he he saw things differently. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Most people since they only counted men at that time, I think there was probably 15 to 20,000 people there. Jesus then took the loaves and he gave thanks and he distributed to those who were seated as much as who, to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same thing with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, "Gather the pieces that are left over; don't let anything be wasted." So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over. Um, by those who had eaten. Stick with me. God is a God of abundance. And Jesus understands his dad. And his dad cares. His dad cares. Not just for your eternal destiny, and he does. He sent his son to die for it. But he cares for your world today and what you're facing and what you're going through. We see scarcity and panic and fear. But Jesus knows his daddy. He knows that the Father and his love for people and he trusts in his abundance. See, he wanted to see if Philip understood that truth. That apparently a young boy did. I love the detail that John ends with because it's almost funny i can almost see him smirking as he writes it after the people saw the sign jesus performed they began to say well surely this is the prophet who's come into the world i mean this is a game changer we just saw we just experienced we just tasted and seen that the lord is good god cares for us even in our worldly concerns we've got to think a little bit different maybe trust a little bit more I mean, no one could be the same after something like this. They saw him do it, which is pretty interesting because just a short time later, I believe two chapters in the, in the book of Mark, he writes about a similar story. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion for these people. Is this sound familiar? They've already been with you three days and I haven't had anything any eat. If I send them home hungry, they're going to collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Jesus had compassion. He cared for those people. If he cared enough to go to the cross to satisfy the justice requirement of God, do the sins of the world on your behalf, don't you think he cares enough about your current situation? Well, his disciples answered, but where in this remote place could we possibly get enough bread to feed them? Do you see How firmly we have our feet planted in the world of what is. We keep thinking that's all that matters is what is. How hard is it to move to the world of what if? I mean, imagine looking the look on Jesus' face, looking at Philip, like, are you serious, dude? Really? Again? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he, he broke them and, and he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up the seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present that day. Two miracles of provision. Two times where Jesus' concerns for us outweighed the disciples' faith. Two times where Jesus tries to show them something about his desire to provide for his people and for them to trust and believe in more than what they see. To have hope. Speaking about seeing something unseen, though, did any of you notice a pattern to the provision? Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. Take bless, break, give. Take, bless, break, give. Bergamon calls these the four decisive verbs of our sacramental existence, a pattern, a rhythm, a a way of relationship between God and his creation. Jesus understood it. Now let me explain it to you. I never caught this before, and it shows up again and again and again. Dave referenced it this morning in our time of communion. Luke records us for us exactly what happened at the last supper. Anybody remember what Jesus does at the last supper? And he took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and he gave it to them, saying, "This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." Take, bless, break, give. How do we relate to God? How do we walk with him in hopeful realism? How do we leave a scarcity mindset and move towards faith and away from fear? With our lives, we enter into the relationship of, and rhythm where we take, bless, break, give. Not convinced? Luke records a pretty interesting account of a post-resurrection meeting Jesus had with a couple of downcast disciples. He starts this way, now that same day as the women who had found his tomb empty, Two of them, two of the disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were walking, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. They were distraught, they were disappointed, they had given up, Jesus was gone, somebody stole his body. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself comes up and walks with them, but the scripture said they didn't recognize him. And so they tell this stranger what had happened with Jesus and how he wasn't in the grave But then Jesus, this stranger, begins to explain to them, based on what the prophets had written, how things, why things had to go down the way they did. But it was not his teaching that gave him away. They still didn't know who he was. They were walking next to the risen Savior, but they were still walking in their own power with two feet planted in the world of what is, a mindset of scarcity. With a lack of hope or trust in God, but then they stopped for a meal. This is how Luke recorded it. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. What gave him away? What opened their eyes? What ushered them into knowledge and faith and away from fear? Take, bless, break, and give. Want to see it again? Acts chapter 27. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, was an outlaw from the Romans at the time. They were trying to get him back to Rome for a trial. He's out on a boat (laughs) He's being taken back to Rome for it. The voyage is going terrible. The ship is caught in a storm that lasted for two weeks. The crew's terrified. But Paul was assured by God, because Paul understood, he, be, he believed that there was something more than just what is, is what it is. Paul was assured by God that they would all live. An angel had visited him in a dream. And so he told these men that lacked faith and owned fear this. He said, eat. And after that, he said, after he said this, after he told them eat, he took some bread. He gave thanks in front of the all. He broke it, and he began to eat. They were all encouraged and, and ate some food for themselves. There were 276 on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened, I love this, they lightened up the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When's the last time you lightened up your ship by throwing your provisions into the sea? They lightened the ship by getting rid of the food. and abundance mentality set into a ship of scarity. And the next day, everyone reached land safely. Five times, over and over, four-step pattern, rhythm of provision. Each time, God providing physically or spiritually to those who were impacted, moving them from fear to, to faith, from places of hopelessness and despair, and there's nothing left to hope, the possibility that things could change and be different. So in the coming weeks, that's my goal, to, to look at that pattern, to begin to help each of us live in that pattern. What does it mean to take and, and bless and break and give? Next week, we're going to look at how Jesus sees the world and how he invites us to see. Jesus takes. In other words, when Jesus took the loaves and the fish, he looks to heaven. Why? Because he doesn't see what you and I see. Jesus sees potential that no one else sees, maybe other than that little boy. We're going to start by rethinking together, people of faith, what's actually possible we have to start to see ourselves and our situations and other people differently because we tend to see what's past, but we're invited to see a world of potential of what could be. I say all the time as followers of Jesus, we should be the most expected people on the face of the earth. What if, Can I just ask you a question? What if Jesus was serious when he said that with God all things are possible? Then we're going to look at the, the loaves. Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks. He, he blesses them. He, he dedicates them to God for His purposes. So Jesus takes. He realizes capacity differently, and then he blesses. He consecrates what he has. We're going to look like what it would look at. What it would look like for you and I to invite God in to what we have, who we are. What does it look like to invite God to live in in our lives practically? To offer to Him to consecrate. Consecrate is a fancy religious word, which means to set apart for the use of God. God, for so many of us, especially for some of our kids, has just become like a distant hope. What if we begin to actually offer to, to God for, for His use real things in our lives, our stuff, our families, our kids, our times, our thoughts, even our failures... Imagine living, living a life where God's presence and power is real and it's experienced and it's on display. Speaking of, of, of failures, Jesus, he takes the bread, he blesses it, and then he breaks it. He challenges us. The bread and the reality is in this world, we're all going to get broken a bit. This has to stop being surprising. Some of you need to understand you are not promised a world where nothing bad is going to happen to you. In our social media-filled worlds, nobody posts about brokenness, but the reality of our lives is this. A life given to God is not going to be free from pain. We have to help our kids understand this. We, We have to understand it. Being broken has to happen so we can be reoriented. So we can change the way we think. A life without challenges is often an unreflective and empty life. What do we do when the challenge comes? How do we respond to it? How do we allow it to increase our faith rather than than having us abandon it? And lastly we're gonna look at purpose. He, He takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, and then he gives the bread. Because when we live with a mindset of scarcity, we become afraid and we compete and we hoard. Jesus gave the other loaves and fish out to distribute. Do you understand the miracles would have stopped if the disciples just said, there's still not enough, I'm going to hold the basket right here. Abundance and selfishness are irreconcilable. In this part, we're going to look at what it really looks like to love. To be less isolated, more connected again. And free from our self-focus. When Jesus fed those original 5,000, the gospel writers all agree right after that. This is so, he's just so good. Right after that, he goes away to pray and tells his disciples to get into a boat and set out onto a lake. And they do. Well, some time goes by and the disciples look out onto the lake. And here comes Jesus walking on the water. Now they see him. And again, because they've got two feet Firmly planted in only what could, only what is, they see him and they never assume, oh, look, it's the Lord. Instead, they cry out, it's a ghost. Here's how Mark records what happened. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage, don't be afraid. It's I, don't be afraid. And then he climbs into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. Why? For they had not understood about the loaves. For they hadn't understood about the loaves. Understanding what Jesus was trying to communicate, they missed it because their hearts were hardened. This year, I would love to make it a year where together we begin to understand about the loaves. Remember the loaves, maybe become a little more like that little boy who came forward with a couple of fish and a little bit of bread and said yeah I think I could help it's time for us to really believe again it's time for this place to really have hope again because we can't offer to our kids and community what we don't have and maybe that's why Jesus offered us this challenge At that time, the disciples came and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child to him. He he placed the child among them, and he said, truly, I'm telling you, unless you change, unless you change and become like little children, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Alexander's book starts with, and I'll leave you with, a story of childlike faith. It's a story about loss and the potential for hopelessness that could have set in, Except for this one little boy, Jaden Hayes, he had all the opportunities to give up, to give in, to isolate, but instead of that, he overcame. Instead of choosing a mindset of fear and scarcity and isolation, a kid who literally had almost nothing figured out something that the richest richest of us here in Mendham, New Jersey have to keep struggling with. Check this out.
1: We end tonight with a little boy with enormous power, the power to lift spirits. Here's Steve Hartman on the road. It is every kid's worst nightmare, and six-year-old Jaden Hayes has lived it twice. First, he lost his dad when he was four. Then last month, his mom died unexpectedly in her sleep. I tried and I tried. I tried to get her away. Couldn't. Jaden is understandably heartbroken. Anybody can die. That's anybody. But there's another side to his grief, a side he first made public a few weeks ago when he told his aunt and now guardian, Barbara DeCola, that he was sick and tired of seeing everyone sad all the time. And he had a plan to fix it. And That was the beginning of it. That's where the adventure began. Jaden asked his Aunt Barbara to buy a bunch of little toys and bring them here to downtown Savannah, Georgia, near where he lives. Thank you, sweetie. So he could then... me to have it? ...give them away. Thank you, man. What is it you're doing? Well, I'm trying to make people smile. Rubber duckies, dinosaurs. Because those are the things that make people smile. Yeah. And what happens to their face? Really? Really. See that man right there? Jaden targets people who aren't already smiling and then turns their day around. You made me smile. He's gone out on four different occasions now, and he's always successful. It's to make you smile. Even if sometimes he doesn't get exactly the reaction he was hoping for. It is just so overwhelming to some people that a six-year-old orphan would give away a toy, expecting nothing in return except a smile. Oh. Of course, he is paid handsomely in hugs. How are you? And his aunt says these reactions have done wonders for Jaden. It's like sheer joy came out of this child. And the more people that he made smile, the more this light shone. Jaden says that's mostly true. But I'm still saying that my mom died. I bet you are. This is by no means a fix. But in the smiles he's made so far, nearly 500 at last count, Jaden has clearly found a purpose. I'm counting on it to beat 33,000. 33, 33,000? Mm. That's a pretty big goal. Mm-hmm. You think you can make that goal? Uh, I think I can. I think he just did. Steve Hartman on the road in Savannah, Georgia. And that's the CBS Evening News for tonight. For all of us at CBS News all around the world, I'm Scott Pelley, and I'll see you Sunday on 60 Minutes.
0: Madam, you are invited into a new way to live. To take and bless and break and give. And I hope again. Our kids need it. Our community is looking for it. Join me on the journey. We'll pick it up again here next week.